Hey everybody, welcome to Secondhand Stories. I'm your host, Jim Zabo. Thanks again for choosing to slow down and listen up with us today. Today's episode is dedicated to the concept of you don't know what you've got till it's gone. Sometimes when you pave paradise, you put up a parking lot, but that's not always the case. Our first story today comes from Scott Wilson, a daily writer for the Japanese news entertainment website, Rocket News 24. His short stories have been published in the online literary magazines Sigale, that's C-I-G-A-L-E, sorry if I mispronounced it, and Unbuild Walls. He can be found on Twitter at twitter.com slash scottdoesstuff, tweeting about his love-hate relationship with living as a hermit in the Japanese countryside. Scott's story is called Everything for Sale. I, I've never done this kind of thing before. My palms were sweaty, and my voice was cracking, but the pawn shop dealer didn't care. He spread a smile like butter across his frog-shaped face and laid his hairy sausage fingers on the counter between us. Don't worry, kid. I'll take care of you. I'm a professional. Been in the business since before your mommy and daddy even thought about making you. Now tell me, what can I interest you in? Well, actually... I swallowed. The words tried to choke me on their way up. I don't really want to buy anything. I was looking to, well, sell, if possible. The dealer suddenly didn't look so interested. His grin melted away, and he crossed his beefy arms. I started to wish I hadn't come. Sell, sell, sell. I should have known. That's all anyone wants to do. I'm sorry, I can go if... Hey, no, you said you wanted to sell, so what do you got? Spill the beans, kid. I took a deep breath. Okay, um, I mean, I have some happiness, a little bit of nostalgia, and some aspiration too, I think, if you want. I'd rehearsed the line before coming, and was proud I'd even managed to get it out, but the dealer did not look impressed. He just stood, with the same disinterested expression on his face. That's it? No satisfaction? No bliss? Not even some romance? I mean, I don't think so. I can try and remember something if you... Listen, kid. The dealer leaned in closer. I only deal in high-quality emotions. I've got enough chumps coming in here looking to sell off their whole brains that I can afford to be picky. So if you want to sell me something, you'd better dig a little deeper, all right? My face burned with embarrassment. I knew this was a mistake. Here, the dealer said. He turned around and picked up one of the hundreds of jars from the shelf behind him. It had a label with something written on it. Do you know what this is? Uh, no, I answered. This is the joy from a man who ordered a pizza. But when it got delivered, the delivery guy accidentally gave him two pizzas instead. And when he called the shop about the mistake, they said to keep it, on the house. Two pizzas for the price of one. Can you imagine that? Well, you don't have to. I have that exact feeling bottled here for anyone to buy for a hundred bucks. I didn't know what to say, but apparently it didn't matter. The dealer quickly grabbed another jar off the shelf. And this one. This one is special. 
This is the feeling from someone who got to sit down and watch the original Star Wars trilogy with someone who'd never even heard of Star Wars before. Now that's a doozy of a good feeling. A steal at 500. He immediately grabbed another jar off the shelf. This one he handled a little more carefully as he placed it on the counter. And this? This is one of my prized happy emotions. It's one of the rarest of all. You could go to a hundred pawn shops and not find this anywhere. You know what it is? Uh, no, I answered. It's waking up in the morning to no alarm clock, realizing you don't have anything to do that day, and taking as long as you want to slowly get up, eat breakfast, and relax at home without any obligations. How much does it cost? I asked, surprising myself with my curiosity. The dealer laughed. I'll say this much. If you have to ask, then you can't afford it. He pushed the jars aside and leaned onto the counter. So, kid, now that you know what I'm looking for, I'll ask again. What do you got? Seeing the rare emotions had been interesting, but now it was time to leave. I knew I didn't have anything that could hope to compete. Sorry, but I think I have to go. I don't have anything that you want, and... Yeah. Sorry. Bye. I made my way to the door, but just as I set off the chime, the dealer let out a laugh. Whatever, kid. Suit yourself. You got something special, but don't blame it on me when it gets stolen right off of you. What do you mean? I asked. What I mean is, you got something you could sell, but instead you're out there wearing it every day like a gold brick around your neck. Someday, somebody's just going to swipe it off of you and you'll wish you'd sold it to me instead. Might as well make some cash while you can. I let go of the door and took a step back inside. What do you mean? What do I have? Before he could answer, the door chime went off again, and another customer stepped in. Or hobbled in, actually. She was barely a person anymore. She had a peg leg, two wooden sticks for arms, and only one real leg left that she used to drag herself and hop forward. But despite all that, she had a smile on her face as she wobbled right past me toward the counter. Ah, Penny, said the dealer. How are you doing, kid? Couldn't be better, she said. Her bright, cheerful voice did not match her appearance at all. Are you sure? You're not feeling stiff? Maybe a little wooden? Oh, stop it, Penny giggled. Anyway, I'm just here for the monthly hopes and dreams drop-off. I assume that's still okay? For you, kid, I'd buy how you felt eating breakfast this morning. Penny smiled and used her wooden peg arms to fumble a jar out of her jacket pocket. She placed it on the counter and the dealer handed her cash, which she quickly stuffed away using the wooden nubs. Thanks so much, she said. This will let me keep my good leg for at least another month. Or I hope so, anyway. Hey, don't use up all that hope in one place, the dealer said with a chuckle. I'm still looking forward to next month's shipment. Oh, don't you worry. I'll be full again by then. Thanks. With that, she spun around on her wooden leg and started hobbling to the door. I stepped out of her way, and as she passed, I could have sworn I saw a tear streaming down her cheek. The door chimed, and she left. As soon as she was out of sight, the dealer examined the jar she'd given him, snorted, and then heaved it into the trash can across the room. 
What did you do that for? I asked. That crap? It's all fake. Those hopes and dreams are nothing but phony ones manufactured by your school. It's nasty stuff. Makes you sick. Not even worth the price of the jar. But I don't understand. You paid for it. It's like you're just throwing money away. Kid, you don't know squat about this business. I'm not throwing shit away. I'm investing. Penny, one day she's going to come selling, and it's going to be different. Someday, I'm guessing not too far off, she's going to sell me something very good. What's she going to sell you? I asked. For once, the dealer didn't respond right away. He just smiled and beckoned me over. I thought about leaving. I thought about going home and forgetting all about this. But something made me walk back up to the counter. Here, kid. You know what? I like you. Think maybe you and I have a future together, so I'll let you in on a little secret. You see all these emotions behind me, on the shelves? The happy ones? Yeah, I answered. These things, they're mostly for show. Sure, every now and then I get someone in here who wants one of them, but that's few and far between. Most of my customers, and I'm talking about the big spenders, the ones who keep food on my plate, are interested in something... a little different. Like what? I asked. The dealer raised his eyebrows. Follow me. He stepped out from behind the counter and walked toward a door I hadn't noticed. He grabbed a jangling mess of keys from his pocket, inserted one into the lock, and opened it up with a creak. He stepped in, then looked back for me. Well, are you coming or not? he asked. It was strange. Usually, my heart would be beating so fast I'd feel sick in a situation like this. But instead, I felt an odd surge of confidence pulse through me. I followed right behind him, through the door, and into another room. It was dark, but I could see what he wanted to show me. There were shelves, dozens and dozens of them, from the floor to the ceiling, overflowing with what must have been thousands of jars. But there was something different about these jars. They were cloudy, like they were made out of burnt glass. These are the real moneymakers, kid, the dealer said. The bad emotions. Bad emotions? I asked. Yeah. These bad boys are way more popular than the happy ones. Don't ask me why. I've got no idea. Maybe it's because there's so many more varieties. I mean, you've got your typical anger and sadness, nausea, whatnot. But just like the rare ones I showed you before, I've got some real special ones in here, too. Like what? I asked. The dealer grinned. Here's one right here, he said, picking up a jar that looked like it was covered in dust. Got this one from an old lady who watched Jeopardy every day, but she always shut it off right when the final Jeopardy song stopped playing. It was too stressful for her to watch. She always just imagined that the person in last place somehow clinched it. Her life had become miserable enough, and she didn't want to see any more sadness. But what about this one? This one's from a guy whose wife was madly in love with him. What's so bad about that, you ask? It was a one-way relationship. He wasn't in love with her. Every night they went to bed, she wrapped her arm around him, in bliss, and he imagined how he could tell her how he felt the next day. That next day never came. Forty years of slow, painful heartache can be yours, with just one jar. And here, this is one of my favorites. A woman, a refugee, who 
who had to choose between bringing her disabled son or healthy daughter with her on the last boat out of their country. And the best part? Her agonizing over the decision isn't the feeling I have bottled here. What's in this bottle is something far worse. How she felt when she realized it wasn't a hard choice at all. Something bubbled inside me. I'd had enough of this dealer's babble. I didn't care about any of these stupid emotions. I didn't know where this feeling was coming from, but there was only one thing I wanted, and it was time to get it. What's the worst emotion you have? I asked, looking around the shelves. I want to see the best you've got. The dealer smiled and put the jars he'd shown me back on the shelves. He bent over and reached down on the ground to pick up a jar that was so black I didn't even know it was there. It blended right into the shadows. This one, the dealer said slowly, is the crown jewel of my collection. What is it? I asked. This one is the feeling of putting a gun to your head and wondering what it would feel like the second before you pulled the trigger. Will you see yourself falling to the ground? Or will it all just go black? Will it hurt? Will you feel the bullet dig its way into your brain? With this jar, you don't have to wonder anymore. Do you? Do you even know how one goes about getting an emotion like this, kid? I didn't respond. I just watched the dealer return the jar to the floor, disappearing back into the blackness. See, kid, if you think about it, I'm one of the good guys. I help people. I get rid of their bad feelings, jar them up, and sell them to whatever rich sickos or hipster artists out there want them. I've helped so many people, and I can help you too. I didn't know why, but the thought of selling didn't seem scary at all anymore. In fact, it seemed like the right thing to do. I just had to make sure I was getting a good deal. Well, I guess I could sell you something small, I said. You know, something I wouldn't miss. I was hoping you'd say that, the dealer said, because I have the perfect thing in mind. He reached into his pocket and took out a jar. It was sparkling gray, like dust mites in the light. What's that? I asked. Your anxiety, the dealer said. All your worries, your fears. I knew as soon as I saw you that I had to have it. Your sweat, your shaking, your stuttering. It was all so... pure. That's so rare these days. Usually I get nothing but fake exteriors and facades. But genuine fear? Weakness? Vulnerability? Now that's worth something. Wait, you mean this whole time you've been stealing my anxiety? I asked. Hey, I'm not stealing anything. You can have it all back if you want. Here, go ahead. Take the jar. It can be yours again right now, if you want. He held the jar in front of me. I could see everything inside of it. All of my fears and worries in one place, just like he said. Think about it, he whispered. Give them to me, and you'll never get butterflies in your stomach again. You can be confident, assertive, get whatever you want, whenever you want, without worrying about anything. That, that doesn't sound so bad, actually. So do we have a deal? I looked at the jar one more time. My fears and worries stared back. At that moment, all I could feel was revulsion toward them. It was like seeing a tumor that had been removed from my body. I was glad they were gone. I was glad they'd been taken. Now I could be free of them forever. Yes, I said. 
It's a deal. The dealer smiled, placed the jar on the shelf behind him, and patted me on the back as he led me out of the room. Together we walked back to the counter, and he opened the register, handing me far more cash than I expected. Thank you, I told him, quickly putting it away in my wallet. No, kid, he said. Thank you. Don't be a stranger, all right? I nodded and made my way out the door. The whole way home, all I could think about was how glad I was that I'd come. In fact, I should come back more often. There were plenty more useless feelings that I could get some cash for. Ha! I'd been so stupid to think this was going to be scary. I should come back tomorrow. Our second story today is called Man's Best Friend, and it's written and read by Nicholas McDonnell. Nicholas McDonnell is a writer and teacher living in Kansas City, Missouri. His stories have been featured in Sixfold Magazine, The Provo Canyon Review, Typehouse Literary Magazine, Story Shares, and Oscillate Wildly Press. Nicholas McDonnell's story, Man's Best Friend. Man's Best Friend. The estate sale followed the funeral. The family heirlooms were picked clean before the auction, but practical items still remained. The unwanted artifacts of a life moved on. Flyers were posted for two weeks leading up to the sale. The children worried that two weeks wasn't enough time, but when the day of reckoning finally arrived, the vultures descended in droves. The children hired an auctioneer from Pueblo to run the sale. Miles objected at first, citing the traveling fee the auctioneer required for driving all the way out to Branson, but Betty eventually won her brother over. Miles and his sisters knew nothing of the farm equipment. If they ran the sale, they would lose far more than what the auctioneer asked. It's a fair trade, Betty said. A trade that guaranteed their father's livelihood would go to the highest bidder. Buyers were given two hours to browse before the auction began. The auctioneer proved his worth by bringing a set of banquet tables, laying out the smaller items by category and worth on the flat plastic surfaces. Craftsman tool sets, spare tractor parts, and branding equipment filled the cavernous space of their father's garage, cataloged with little blue stickers that listed starting bids. Betty, Miles, and Diane Pritchett left the garage and headed out towards the yard. There, the tractors, a baler and a swather, several cattle trailers, and two pickup trucks sat parked in a neat little row. Betty and Diane had washed the trucks the day before while Miles brought round the two tractors from out back. As a boy, Miles' father Alan had taken him on early morning rounds, drilling him on the finer points of handling a machine. At one point, Miles had been a decent enough hand, but he never had the passion required to master farm life. At 18, he'd left home, and save for the brief trip back where he would lend a hand, Miles had done what he could to forget his father's lessons. He paid for it while parking, jarring the tractors in and out of gear and taking multiple shots to line up the trailers. Eventually, he got it right, although his sisters knew their father would have laughed silly at how long it took. Between the vehicles and the tools, the children would fetch a pretty penny. But what they earned from the auction paled in comparison to what they'd made from their father's livestock. While he was still breathing, 
Alan Pritchett proudly claimed that he could trace the origins of his cattle as far back as he could the lineage of his family. Texas Longhorns, driven north before Colorado was a state, had given the Pritchett clan a stake in this world. Alan's father and his father's father before him had purified the bloodlines, nurturing calf to cow like shepherds of old. The herd was Alan Pritchett's greatest pride, and although his children stopped showing steers in 4-H before their teenage years, they understood just how much those cattle meant. But times had changed. Miles had alimony and a second wife to boot, and both Betty and Diane's children would be going to college soon. It wasn't like the Pritchett kids couldn't handle such financial burdens, but liquidating the herd meant collecting a windfall too lucrative to pass up. Alan Pritchett's will wasn't ironclad, but it made requests. For the hundredth time, he repeated his dream of Miles coming home and taking over the ranch. In case Miles failed to meet his expectation, Alan Pritchett requested that the herd be sold to one of his neighbors. That would keep his cows on the land, proof of what he'd done as a man in the world. But the neighbors couldn't offer as much as the feedlot in Lamar, and although that meant the entire herd would be sent to the slaughterhouse in one fell swoop, 150 years of tears and sweat gone in less than a month, the bottom line had made the children's decision for them. The ranch fell empty without the ever-present cows dotting the landscape, those specks of life in a sea of sagebrush. But as the children wandered among the farm equipment, they tried putting aside what had already been done. Two hours passed quickly, and soon the auctioneer began making calls. Beside the tables and the stickers, the auctioneer had brought a portable podium that folded up in the bed of his Ford. While the siblings had been browsing, the auctioneer assembled his stand on the front steps of their childhood home. The Pritchett children planned on hiring a realtor after the auction, but stripping one layer of memories after another had proved more tiring than expected. Although they walked away from each divestment richer, Betty, Miles, and Diane felt each loss to the core. The house could wait. As the auctioneer hooped and hollered, the children made their way into the crowd. While the lesser items of their father's livelihood went first, the Pritchett kin scanned the gathered horde. Diane saw the Richardsons and the Jensens, neighboring ranchers whom she'd known since she was knee-high to a grasshopper. Mrs. Jensen wasn't paying attention to the auction, but as her husband Larry placed an offer, Mrs. Jensen looked over at the children and smiled. Diane nodded back, but as she did, she caught something on Mrs. Jensen's face that didn't quite sink up. It was bright outside, just past noon on a clear Colorado morning, but even with the glare from the sun, it seemed like Mrs. Jensen had something in her eyes. They were reddened, puffy, and if Diane didn't know better, it looked like she'd been crying. Mrs. Jensen turned away, but Diane made a note to ask her siblings if they had noticed the same thing. While Diane scanned the crowd, her sister Betty was busy as well. Betty didn't monitor the auction like her brother, her mind too preoccupied to track the climbing prices coming from the auctioneer's microphone. No, Betty's mind was elsewhere. Betty was the oldest Pritchett, and although their mother had passed away so many years before, she had known her the best of her siblings. She was seven when her mother died, but as Betty watched her father's legacy being sold, at such a sight she wondered what Abigail Pritchett would have said. Abigail Pritchett had been a creature of the plains, just like their father, stock from a dying breed. Alan Pritchett never remarried after his wife's passing, 
But even 50 years past her death, Betty knew he still mourned. He remembered her as the only woman he ever loved, but Betty's memories were of a different sort. What Betty remembered were the little things, the soft hands and long brown braid, the denim skirts and topaz earrings. Those images shone clearest in Betty's mind, flashes from youth captured in the tide of memory. How her mother lived and what she believed in were always a mystery, but if she had loved her father as much as he loved her, Betty could paint a clear enough picture. Mother would have been proud of father. Without a woman in the house, he raised them as best he could. Alan Pritchett wasn't the most caring man, but he always tried, buying his girls Sunday dresses from the Sears catalog. More often than not, he purchased wrong sizes, but he strived to do right by his girls. How different life would have been if mother hadn't died? Would she have endured like their father, as unending as the buttes and the sagebrush? Would she have stood by and let her children, her own flesh and blood, give away the only birthright they had coming? Perhaps it was for the best, thought Betty, best that she would never know. As his sister searched the crowd and scoured their souls, Miles Pritchett was busy registering the rewards of the auction. Insurance sales had gone dry of late, and combined with his monthly alimony, he needed the payoff. Miles knew he should have been closer to his father, but despite being his dad's pride and joy, he never could relate to his old man. The world had done moved on, and try as he did convincing his father that it was time to move on with it, time and testament did little to budge his ways of old. Until the day he died, Alan Pritchett preached the virtues of his world, where life was something you still measured in heartbeats. Only Miles never wanted those foregone ways. When Miles left home at 18, his Levi jeans and cowboy boots made him stand out. He learned fast, and within a week had thrown away anything that linked him to the dust. He planned on being his own man, and although it was rougher going than expected, he had grown his own life out of the fabric of the world. Miles didn't raise cattle, but he did raise something else. His father never could see that, but as Miles watched the last of the tools being sold to the co-op out of Folsom, he understood that he was free. Good riddance, he thought. He had trashed the rest years before. When the auctioneer finished selling the smaller items, the crowd began making its way over to the farm equipment. John Deere and New Holland tractors stood waiting, workhorses of the industrial generation. Just like the horses and mules before them, they too required tender care. Through countless hours of tinker and toil, Alan Pritchett had oiled, greased, and rebuilt every machine. He raised his children, but he nurtured his equipment. Perhaps if he'd done things the other way around, life would have turned out different. The auctioneer started with the tractors. He led the crowd around both machines, calling out the mileage and attributes of each before bidding began. The sale started off at the children's agreed price, and although there were fewer bidders for the big-ticket items, desire drove the prices high. The John Deere sold first, and after some heated bidding, the New Holland tractor went for more than expected. The children watched as the auctioneer moved his way down the line. It was no surprise when the swather and the other ancillary parts went to the same buyers as the tractors. It all worked better as a set. After the last of the farm equipment went, the auctioneer made quick work of the cattle trailers. Mr. Jensen purchased one, but when Diane searched for his wife, Mrs. Jensen had disappeared. Mr. Jensen went up and signed his paperwork, 
nodding at Miles before retiring to find his wife. The final items for sale that day were their father's two pickup trucks. The first was a 2010 Ford F-150. Miles and Betty had given that truck to their father on his 70th birthday, and while it should have shown the wear of time, it took very little effort to wash it clean. Truth was, even though it irritated his daughters to no end, their father Alan had never really taken to the Ford. As Alan Pritchard saw it, the world had gotten into the business of trying to cheat life out of its due recompense. He never took to the new truck because in his eyes it just wouldn't have been fair. God didn't make the land hard to be conquered, he told Betty on one of their bi-weekly phone calls. He made it hard so that men and women would rise to the challenge. For that reason, Miles knew he would face tough competition if he wanted to buy the vehicle back. It was nearly brand new, and to make it his own, he would have to pay the price. Miles hadn't told his sisters his plan to purchase the truck, but when he raised his hand as the auction started, neither seemed surprised. All the money from the sale was bound for a community pot, so it made little difference to Betty or Diane if Miles wanted a piece of their father's memory. For his part, Miles didn't want to remember his father any more than he wanted the family brand on his left ass cheek, but he knew a good deal when he saw it. He ended up paying $2,000 more than he would have liked, but with the money he would get from the pool, Miles was satisfied. After the Ford F-150 sold, the auctioneer turned to the final item of the day. The old Chevy was etched into the children's memories, each one of them storing it in a different place in their hearts. All three Pritchett children had learned to drive in that sky-blue 1967 gas guzzler, forcing the rigid stick shift into gear as their father guided their dirt road lessons. Miles drove the truck to his senior prom, splitting a bottle of pilfered Jack Daniels, he had reached third base with Rebecca Wainwright in the high school parking lot. The coarse bench seat and steamy windows never left his mind. Diane had driven the Chevy to her prom as well, but what she remembered best from her time in their father's truck was the day it brought her home safe from the worst hailstorm she had ever seen. Diane was driving back from basketball practice, and although she should have known better, she had been caught out on back roads, far from cover. The hail was softball size cracking the windshield and denting the hood. But as she cried amidst the thumping dings, the Chevy never faltered. Betty had her own special memory of the Chevy, but it was one she never shared. On the fifth anniversary of her mother's death, Betty and her father Alan had gone to visit Abigail Pritchett's grave. They brought with them a bouquet of wildflowers that took all morning to pick. But as they stood together in the windswept cemetery, Betty had seen her father cry for the first and only time. Alan Pritchett cried and wept and looked up at heaven like he would curse it, but eventually he just wiped his eyes with his denim sleeves, patting his oldest daughter on her head as he did. Betty was only twelve, but that memory shone out for her like a beacon in the sky. You look so much like her, her father had said. Having his fill of grief, Alan walked with Betty, hand in hand, back to the Chevy. They took the long way home that afternoon. That meant an extra 45 minutes on their drive, but Betty didn't mind. As the crowd descended upon the old truck, the auctioneer led the mass. He had just placed his hand on the rusted bed of the pickup when out of nowhere, a movement flashed across the day. The auctioneer had been looking away, but sensing the stunned faces of the crowd, was lucky enough to turn and rip his hand back just in time. As quick as he'd been, the blur was fast enough. 
snapping down and catching sleeve on the auctioneer's escaping arm. The blue healer lashed out again and again, discontented, only catching fabric. Bailey the Blue might not have been as old as the man she called Master, but each one of Alan Pritchett's children liked to joke that their father's dog had been around as long as him. In truth, Alan picked Bailey from the litter ten years after Diane left home, but that was so long ago that the memory of Bailey's origins had faded into the landscape. When Miles got the call from Mr. Jensen that he had found his father, dead in the field beside his tractor, the children came home as fast as they could. When they arrived, Bailey still occupied her spot on the front porch, guarding the homestead and waiting for her boss. Two days after her father's death, the dog hadn't moved. Diane tried prying Bailey with a bowl of water and a treat, but Bailey showed her teeth any time the kids came near. Finally, Miles ran her off after she snapped at his youngest. That had been three weeks prior, and although it was as sore a subject as the cattle, the children all secretly hoped that Bailey had gone the way of their father. The crowd soon recovered from their surprise. Bailey hadn't drawn blood, but the auctioneer was raising hell. Why didn't you tell me there was a goddamn dog, he yelled at Miles. But after both Diane and Betty joined their brother, they were able to convince him that they were just as surprised. The crowd backed off the old Chevy, almost as if Bailey might strike like a rattler, her danger reaching far beyond her muzzle. Miles assured everyone that the dog was only frightened, but as he made his way up to the truck in slow, measured steps, Bailey didn't flinch. Hairs rose rigid on the back of her neck, while foam dripped down her yellow teeth. The auctioneer asked Betty if the dog was rabid, but Bedley could only look on as her brother tried to calm the angry dog. When Miles got as close as the auctioneer had been, Bailey snapped out again. Miles fell over in a pile as he backpedaled away, but Bailey didn't advance. Instead, she slunk into the bed of the truck, scanning the crowd for her next challenger. Miles dusted himself off, furious in his strokes. He didn't carry a gun, but knew that with so many farm people around that one had to be near. You got a pistol? Miles asked the auctioneer, but after he shook his head no, Miles turned to probe the crowd. Before he got the chance, Betty turned on Miles as fast as Bailey had before. Just what do you plan on doing if you get a gun? Are you going to shoot that dog right here in front of the crowd? Have you lost your damn mind? Betty made her point. Miles slinked back behind his sisters, staring at the truck and the guard dog within. Many of the gathered shoppers began dropping off. The siblings knew they needed to act, but no idea presented itself. Dust from the exiting vehicles drifted across the yard. As Diane looked out over the crowd, she saw the Jensen's truck pulling away. Finally, she had located Mrs. Jensen. The old woman wasn't looking her way, but Diane saw her grinning ear to ear. After 15 minutes without action, only a handful of bidders remained. Betty wondered if they waited for the auction to resume, or rather, if they were merely interested in what happened with the dog. Miles told the auctioneer he could continue, but although their brother hadn't given up the fight, his sisters stepped in to intercede. We'll just wait to sell the Chevy, Betty told the auctioneer. It was one of the smaller dollar items, and considering what had happened, no one seemed keen to pry the truck from Bailey. Miles was upset that business wouldn't be concluded, but as Bailey stared him down, he accepted that there were just some things they could not shake free. 
The auctioneer called out to the remaining bidders, thanking them for their attendance. The crowd departed with their winnings. When the last of the farm trucks pulled out of the driveway, only the children, the auctioneer, and Bailey remained. Alone at last, the auctioneer led the children over to his truck. As they walked across the yard, further and further from the old Chevy, no one turned back. It was time to focus on the success of the sale. What was behind them was a memory. In front was a new path, a new direction, and a new life cut clean from the world of their father. The auctioneer pulled out his clipboard, went over the receipts, and gave each Pritchett an invoice of what they had made. The payment was enough to make them forget Bailey, and relief filled Betty, Miles, and Diane. After shaking hands with the auctioneer, they stood back as he pulled out of the driveway. In the quiet prairie breeze, Alan Pritchett's children stood without speaking. Eventually, Miles announced his plans. I don't plan on staying another night if I don't have to, he said to the wind. Besides, I need to head back and grab Cheryl. We'll drive out tomorrow to pick up Dad's truck. As for Betty and Diane, both sisters searched the other for any desire to stay. Nothing bound them to leave, but after what happened, Betty and Diane had to go. What they had been, where they had come from, that was gone. They did not walk away from it as easily as their brother, but still they walked away. Betty and Diane told Miles they would leave as well, so as a group, the children packed their things. It didn't take long to gather what remained, and soon enough, Betty, Diane, and Miles stood beside their vehicles. Before they got in, each child turned and looked around, searching for something they could not identify. All they found was an unending sea of buffalo grass. Miles said goodbye first, and after he had gotten in his car and driven away, Betty and Diane understood that it was time for them to go as well. The sisters embraced each other longer than they had their brother. Neither spoke, but as they let go, something between them broke. Family only counts for so much. If it doesn't stand for everything, it stands for nothing. A tear ran down Diane's face as she got in her car. Leaving hurt more than she figured, but she didn't slow down as she crossed the cattle guard at the end of the road. Betty was the last Pridget to leave. She lingered after her sister's departure, fulfilling the role of the oldest child. Nothing was out in the yard. The front door to the house was locked, and other than the Chevy, all remnants of the sale were gone. Betty couldn't see Bailey in the bed of the Chevy, but she was certain the old dog was still there. Bailey had drawn her line in the sand, and whether it was old age, or rather, some kind of misplaced loyalty, she had held her ground. Betty didn't know if her father would have been proud, but as she got in her car and began pulling down the driveway, she realized that it was probably best that she didn't. Late that night, after the final cricket ceased chirping and the dew grew thick on the grass, movement stirred in the yard of the old farmstead. Although no one was there to see it, an old blue healer, arthritic and half-blind, leapt from the bed of the Chevy and made her way to the porch. What she searched for in the darkness, what she waited for till morning, no one would ever know. Still, she waited. Some people walk away from where they came from, some children deny what they once were. Eventually, the Chevy was sold to a scrapyard. The house went to the bank, and after a buyer couldn't be found, insurance claims made up for the loss. 
Field mice found their way into the declining structure. Foul weather wore at the landmark of humanity on the world. The plains continued on, the buttes and the sagebrush as unending as time itself. But the proof of a family, of a man and his work and his life, those things faded away. Man's best friend made her stand, but against such odds, what could she do? Thanks again for slowing down and listening up with us today. We hope you've been enjoying our episodes which feature an author read submission, and we'd love it if you let us know through iTunes reviews. Look for us to be back again in two weeks. Thanks for listening. Slow down and listen up with us again soon. Thanks.